presenting sponsor for this season of Wild Ideas Worth Living is Ford. Their 2021 Ford Bronco Sport is the SUV that'll get you to your outdoor adventures. It's an off-road SUV built for the thrill seeker, the sightseer, and the day tripper. This SUV has many available features to help you get to your destination. With enough ground clearance, off-roading capabilities, and purposeful design that includes easy to clean surfaces and plenty of interior space, this SUV is your gateway to the outdoors. The Ford Bronco Sport is equipped to help you get out there, to the mountain ranges, the woodland trails, and to the coast. You can learn more about what the Bronco Sport has to offer at Ford.com or in our show notes. Living wildly often comes with risks. Sometimes life-threatening danger is part of the deal that adventurers have to accept when they push themselves to extremes. For professional athlete Adam Campbell, mountain running and skiing have been the source of both joy and deep grief. In 2016, Adam had an accident in the mountains and he nearly died. Then in January of 2020, he lost his wife in an avalanche while out skiing. Despite the trauma he suffered, Adam still retreats to the mountains for refuge and for healing. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Adam Campbell has always spent most of his time outdoors and on the move. He grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, but he also spent a lot of time with his family in Spain. That's where he fell in love with the mountains. After moving to Canada in high school, Adam became a triathlete and mountain runner, and he quickly entered the world of racing. He's since competed in and placed at some of the world's most challenging mountain running races and trail ultramarathons. Adam's also a member of Canada's ski mountaineering team, and he is the fastest known time on many Canadian mountains and trails. Five years ago, Adam was running Rogers Pass in British Columbia when he fell 200 feet down a ravine and broke his back and his hip. That fall changed his life. So you're 40, you've lived a wild life. You've done so many sports that people would only dream and competed at the highest level, which is really cool. I think it's great that you just push yourself, but I have also read you've been through a lot, starting with a really gnarly accident that nearly took your life. That was in 2016. I don't know if you can talk about that, but I read about that and, um, I don't know. That looked really gnarly, Adam. Um, yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, one, I mean, the obvious risk with doing um, the type of travel I like to do in the mountains is uh, you, you've limited your safety margins. Um, in one regards, moving fast in the mountains can provide some level of safety because you can escape sort of bad weather or get yourself out of situations quickly. But you can also get yourself into situations quite quickly. Um, so s speed can be dangerous for sure, especially if you're not really paying attention or if you've cut the margins too, too close. Like the end, the, you end up having to bail a lot on your objectives when you're going light and fast because you've, you've narrowed your margins so much that you have to be willing to, to pull the pin much sooner 
And um, unfortunately, I was doing this big traverse in um, an area called Rogers Pass, British Columbia, which it's a very famous backcountry ski area, maybe one of the most famous backcountry ski areas in North America. But it's also a really beautiful summer mountaineering area. And I was trying to do a, a link up of 14 peaks in, in Rogers Pass with a couple of friends of mine. And, and normally it's a three and a half day, four day mountaineering objective. And we were trying to do it in a day, um, sort of taking our light and fast ethos to the mountains. And uh, I was following my two friends up this one ridge line. We'd already gone a, a, across a few peaks. And um, even though they'd, 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 my friends had moved up through this area, so Nick and Dakota were their names, um, and they're both in, incredible, incredible mountain runners uh, themselves. And uh, I was following the route they were taking, and all of a sudden I, I put my hand on this block to pull myself up because it's it, it's proper climbing. Like, this isn't, it's not a trail. Like, this is, you know, there's glaciers. There's, like, really big fifth-class terrain Um there's one of the famous 50 classic routes of North America on it. It's called Mount Sir Donald, um, like a 3,000-foot ridge line. And so as we were, we, were, we were going up this little, this rock buttress, um, I, all of a sudden I feel this block pull out on me and this um, like bar fridge-sized rock pulled out. And next thing I knew, I was falling backwards down the mountain And luckily, I was wearing a helmet, and um, I was carrying the rope that we we had with us in my backpack. We were soloing this section, but we there's other sections where we we were going to use the rope on. And uh, I ended up falling 200 feet um, down the side of this cliff. It wasn't a straight fall down; um, it was it was quite ledgy, and so I was falling from ledge to ledge. And um, I mean, somehow I, I, I got lucky and ended up um, surviving. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty horrific. I was conscious through all of it. Like I still, I can still see um, the vista of the mountains behind me. So there's like a really really beautiful skyline of peaks, and I still remember seeing it flipped upside down, and thinking how strange that was. That that was the last thing I was ever going to see. Like I actually remember having that thought like really really clearly. And I also remember at one point. I was falling down this mountain and I started to slow down. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to live. And then I started falling again. I was like, oh, "Like I'm, I'm done. Um, I'm dead. Um, but all of a sudden I realized I wasn't falling anymore. And I just looked down and there's a big pool of blood underneath me. And I remember not liking that. And so I pushed myself up and rolled myself onto my back and the second I did that, it like brought me back to full consciousness. I was like, well, bad idea. Don't move. Like, you know, you you might be paralyzed here. Like, you know, or you might have a spinal injury. Don't move. Just lie here. And luckily, um, you know, if you're going to have uh, my really dumb joke is if you're going to have a mountain accident, have two of the fastest mountain runners in the world with you because they were able to run down to me quite quickly. They down climbed. But they actually thought they were coming to a body recovery. Uh, they they heard me scream and they saw me fall, um, but they didn't know I was alive. But as they were sort of walking closer to me, expecting to see me dead, um, th- I started screaming and they realized that I was I was still conscious. And uh, uh, we had a, a little inReach with us, which is um, it's like a little um, communication locator beacon because there's no cell signal where we were. 
But we noticed that there was sell signal back at the previous peak. And so Nick quickly ran up to that, the previous mountain that we were on. And Dakota stayed with me and kept me warm and tried to keep me calm. Because even though we were traveling quite light, we, uh, you know, we, we had just enough gear to sort of survive an incident like this. And when you're doing an objective like this, you, you're, you pay really close attention to the weather. So we made sure that the weather was going to be really good for at least 48 hours. So um, the, the local search and rescue crew were able to come to me like quite quickly uh, because the weather was good. Um, and so I was able to get evacuated within two hours of having my accident, which saved my life. Um, so I, I owe my life to, to Nick and Dakota and then also the local search and rescue crew who are incredible. Nick, I, w- I watched some videos about this accident and read like four or five stories and interviews with you after the accident. And I think one of the things that stuck out with me is your recovery. Like most people don't recover as fast as you did after an accident like that. And 10 months later, you ran the Hard Rock 100, which is a hundred mile race in Silverton, Colorado. And you, you'd gotten third, I think the year before, and you, you, you still finished it like only eight hours slower than the year prior. It's, it's, I'm curious to know, I mean, you've been through a lot, but you seem to have resilience. And I'm just curious, like first from that accident, like what are some of the things you turned to that allowed you to recover? And and one of the things I read about in one of your interviews was was gratitude. And I thought that was really interesting, that word. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think there are a few things happened through that that allowed me to recover. Um, so, you know, a lot of times with athletes, if you have sort of a small niggling injury, it, it can really eat away at you. Because it's you're not entirely sure how you got it. You don't really. It's kind of it's it's kind of annoying. Yeah, I have that right now. Yeah, exactly. And it, it kind of like it, you can really dwell on it. Um, and what ended up happening with this accident is it was it was so severe, and I was just so incredibly fortunate to have survived that I just decided to. I was like, I just have to be thankful for anything I can do because I'm alive. And I just have to have like this incredible gratitude for whatever I am able to do. I'm not going to dwell on what I might have lost because in my opinion, I've just, all I've done is gained because I'm alive and anything I can do is a bonus. I'm not paralyzed. I'm alive. And the other thing too, is I was just incredibly like humbled through that, that whole process. I mean, I've been a professional athlete since I was 17. You know, I, I do, you know, I've, you know, running hundred miles in the mountains, like you develop this sort of sense of, well, there's an ego that comes with that. There definitely is a hundred percent. There's a, there's a large ego. I mean, the fact that I thought I could go and do a four day mountaineering trip in, in a day, you know, there's, there's that, that's ego. Um, and what's happened after this is, and, and there's not too many things physically that I didn't think I could, I could do. And all of a sudden, um, and, and it was also my emotional outlet, my body and, you know, like, moving is my emotional outlet is how I cope with all my problems. So here in what was probably the scariest, most difficult moment of my life, I lost my, my emotional outlet. And then I also was, I was just humbled. Like I couldn't do the most simple physical tasks. Like I literally couldn't wipe my own ass. I I couldn't control my bowel. So I would just, you know, I would shit myself. 
And so I'd, and I'd lie there for an hour or two just in my own shit because I was so embarrassed to call these strangers and I didn't want to disturb them to come and like change my diaper, you know, which like that humbles you really quickly. And so these, these absolute strangers were doing the most simple tasks for me and I relied entirely on them. And then I, you also develop this sense as an endurance athlete that, I don't know, you're, 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 you're kind of at it alone. You know, I can run in the mountains, like you're, you're out there alone and I really enjoy doing things alone. Um, but the one thing that happened when I had this accident is all these people that care deeply about me from my family to my friends to, you know, the message I was getting from strangers, I just felt this incredible, like, uh, support network come along and there's just outpouring of love, um, which really, really just like filled my soul because I, so, um, you know, in Canada, we have, we have a public health system and, I'm not, I'm not bragging about that, uh, but, uh, we're, talking we're, of we're, Americans yeah, trying to get no, vaccines no, and COVID tests right now, no, no, you uh, guys have it so yeah. good. No, no, we're, good. We're, we're really fortunate to have that. But because I was in this orthopedic ward, I was in an orthopedic room, uh, with two other people and one guy had been in a helicopter crash, pretty gnarly. The other person was hit by a semi truck, pretty gnarly, um, but the, the, these hospitals are like, are catchments for really big areas. So there's, you know, there's certain main treatment centers. So people get brought in from uh, long distances to these areas to, to receive this sort of higher level of treatment. Like I was flown two, over 200 miles uh, in a helicopter to, to get taken to this hospital where I got treated. And, um, but these other two people that I shared the room with, who'd also gone through like incredibly traumatic, horrible experiences, for whatever reason... They, they couldn't, they didn't have visitors come see them. And I was just thinking how lonely and afraid I would be if I was going through what I was going through physically without these people around me, um, you know, for whether it was their, their family members couldn't take time off work to come see them, or maybe they, you know, they were new to Canada and just didn't have a support network around them. I, I don't know. I couldn't, uh, they weren't really able to, to communicate. Um, so I just thought how terrifying that would be. Whereas I had this, you know, all these people around me, just this love. And I was like, I'm, I'm just so grateful for them. And I'm not this solitary, you know, endurance athlete. I actually, I have this community around me um, and this love. And, and I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's cheesy, but it does, it does help heal. It does. It definitely gave me a lot of strength. And then, you know, I was also kind of fortunate, basically, if you're going to break your back and your hip, which is what I ended up breaking, um, I was I was lucky with with what I broke and it allowed me to to be physical like quite quickly. And then I also think my years of being an athlete and uh taking sort of a systematic approach to recovery um allowed me to to get back moving quicker. Because uh, one of the things that they 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 talk about now um whereas before they would try to get people to be sedentary, now they try to get people to move as quickly as possible. And so I was up and and, and walking and moving. Um you know, I would I would try to push it a little bit, you know, to try to, to move forward. But I also, uh, once again, I would just sort of accept uh, where I was at physically and then also emotionally. Um, I was, body suffered a lot of, like I was in a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. And um, I had this, uh, I, I was really fortunate to have this amazing um, psychologist come by the hospital and I started doing pain meditation with her and just sort of talking to my body and accepting um 
what was going on with it. And that really, really helped me. What does that look like? I, I'm curious. Yeah. So it's, so I, I was dealing with chronic pain um, and, I, and I kept doing this for a while after, and, and I still, I still suffer um, from, from a certain amount of chronic pain from, from those injuries. But you, so you, what you would do is you sit, sit down, you close your eyes and you sort of, you do a big body scan and I'm like, okay, this part of my body's hurting. And you just end up, you actually kind of just talk to those, those parts of your body. Be like, look, I know why you're hurting. I know why you're sore and that's okay. Um, you know, but are you willing to like release a little bit, you know? And so you, you, you talk to those sore spots because I, you know, your body does hold a lot of like your emotional trauma and everything also gets held in your muscles and in your body. You know, you think about when you're stressed, you like tense your shoulders, tense your jaw. So if you can, if you can get those areas to relax, yeah, I mean, hopefully some people just like thought about bringing their shoulders down and giving them a deep breath. Um, but, but if you're able to, to recognize that um, and you can declench those parts of your body, it, you can actually notice your stress levels go down. It's the same thing if you, you know, if you're, if you're really stressed and all of a sudden you start forcing yourself to smile a little bit, you can actually like bring on like a euphoric feeling. It was the same thing after this trauma, like my body just was like really clenched. And so learning how to, to get my body to relax again, um, also allowed some of that trauma to unwind itself. I mean, you just said so much just now. That was so interesting. One love, like love is so powerful too. You said, it's not linear. Healing is not linear. Life is not linear. Like grief is not linear. You touched on loneliness, which I think so many people are experiencing right now. And you're fortunate to have a community, but I think that, that it's kind of acceptance, like, right. Like, you know, in Buddhism, they say suffering is when you fight what's happening to you. And it sounds like you're telling your body like, hey, this is happening and this is why. I don't know. It's incredible, Adam. The fact that you went out 10 months later and then like ran this race and well, finished it is insane. <laughs> so it's, I mean, that's funny. I mean, that was, that was maybe a little bit uh, excessive. I probably didn't need to do a hundred mile uh, hard mountain run. <laughs> I probably, could, probably, probably would be okay with like a 5k run. <laughs> So Laura was my girlfriend um, at the time of the accident and she she went on to become my wife and we were, and to be on it, we were actually like, it was patchy. Like we were, we were like off and on. It wasn't actually going great. And I think one of the reasons I went out and did that big day out was, was to say that, you know, that's how I was, I, I would deal with a lot of my issues. I actually think part of it was because things were going a little bit patchy and I just needed to do something big um, to sort of clear my mind. But when I had the accident, uh, so Laura was doing her medical residency at the time in Calgary. And Calgary is, uh, it was, I think it's like 400 miles or 300 miles away from where I was in hospital. And she ended up uh, dropping everything, getting on, the second she heard the, an accident, got on a flight, flew to, to Kamloops where I was. And she's actually, she actually grew up in Kamloops, kind of coincidentally. And she'd actually worked at the hospital that I was at during med school. So she knew a lot of the doctors there and a lot of the support, a lot of the staff. And um, no, she was just an absolute rock, like just an incredible, incredible human um, through all that. And 
it kind of just knocked some sense into me as well. Um, and I also think it, it helped her also like open up, uh, to the relationship. Like, no, we both actually really, really care about each other. Uh, there's really, really strong feelings there. Like, why, why are we fighting this? Why aren't we just embracing this? And I think me being vulnerable, um, through all that and allowing myself to be vulnerable through it, um, really allowed that love between us to, to blossom because I had come off a divorce prior, prior to knowing Laura. And I, and I definitely had an emotional guard up for sure. And I was a little bit hesitant. It was, it was quite a traumatic divorce. She'd left me in not, not great circumstances. Um, and, uh, and I think, and I just never really processed it. Uh, it was still quite young when it all happened. And, um, and, and I think I carry that into the start of my relationship with Laura and, uh, all of a sudden, when I made myself vulnerable and let that guard down, um, it allowed her in, um, which in turn allowed her to open up as well. Uh, because, you know, when I had my guard up, she would, it would sort of force your partner to put their guard up as well. You, I think you kind of react to each other that way. You're also both these like type A badass, like athletes. She's a doctor. You're a lawyer. Like, I'm sure it was hard to be vulnerable. Like you're both kind of alpha, it sounds like. Uh, to a certain degree. Yeah. No, no, that's not, that's not incorrect. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we definitely both have strong worldviews and self worth views or, you know, and, and, you know, a bit of ego there as well, for sure. But I was reading about Laura and she just seems like she was so cool. So she had this quote that, you know, I love, which is, you know, everyone you meet is fighting a battle, you know, nothing about. So be kind. And kindness is such a game changer, like being kind to other people, being kind to yourself. And I read that Laura was, you know, did, did service projects and worked as a doctor in Soweto in South Africa. You know, you had lived also in Africa. It sounds like you guys had really just this awesome background. She was involved in winter sports, like ice hockey, like how did you two find each other? It was not match.com, but like <laughs> the algorithm would have pointed you together. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was through friends who were like, you guys have a lot in common here. Um, you guys should consider, you guys might want to meet each other. But to, to be honest, I, uh, Somebody suggested that, and I actually saw a photo of her, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I really want to meet her. She's pretty hot. She's hot. <laughs> She's super hot." <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I actually, so I sent her. Um, uh, I think I sent her a Facebook message, and uh, you know, in it, I sort of gave a little bit about my background. I was like, "We have these friends in common," and um, this is a line you should never use on anybody because when you, when you tell when you tell somebody that like you are like a, a lawyer and a professional athlete, you grew up in Africa, it sounds a little bit ridiculous. So I was like, if all that sounds a bit crazy, you can just Google me, but never say Google me. <laughs> you should have said, and I went to Harvard or something like that, or yeah, some pretentious like, it, boarding it school. Across, it's awesome. It came across as way more arrogant than I like had intended. And uh, she was not something to let you live a comment like that down. So <laughs> she let me have it pretty hard for saying Google me, which I completely deserved. <laughs> Um, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, but for whatever reason, she, she did agree to go and meet me for a beer. Um, and we met up for a beer and, um, she'd actually just come off a night shift or a 24 hour shift. And she was exhausted and she said she was going to cancel the date, but for whatever reason decided to, to go ahead with it. And I'm really glad she did. 
yeah, we ended up having, you know, like one beer turned into two beers and we just had this amazing conversation about life. And we just had like a really deep, uh, we just instantly like just connected on a really cool level. Um, and, uh, from the, I think our next date was actually, I, I took her backcountry skiing, which, uh, which, which was, it was awesome. Like she just loved being out in the mountains. So we went for a backcountry ski and, uh, we ended up just spending a lot of time in the mountains together and doing really cool projects. From that second date, Adam and Laura spent a lot of time together in the mountains, hiking and backcountry skiing. Sadly, though, Laura lost her life in an accident on one of their ski adventures. When we return, Adam tells us what happened that day and how he's been recovering. Sure, I live in San Diego, but I still need something that keeps me warm, especially post-surfing in cold water. That's why I love Arc'teryx Adam SL line. From Anorak, hoodie, and vest, there are options to give me extra warmth when I need it. The super light synthetic insulation makes this gear extra light and a perfect layer for when I need a little something to fight the chill. And because they think of the details, the insulation is placed in the places you need it most, the chest and back for efficient warmth. Add in the stretch fleece side panels and you have a go-to layer that I've gladly added to my closet. You can get the Adam SL line at REI.com or head to the show notes for a link. Adam and his wife, Laura, were both skilled outdoors people. They both had operation-level avalanche certification and training, and both logged over 80 days of backcountry skiing in the three years prior to the avalanche. Kevin, the friend they were skiing with when Laura died, is a respected ski guide with accreditation with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides and the Canadian Avalanche Association. But even with their extensive knowledge and experience, the conditions of this avalanche were tough. I want to warn you that Adam's descriptions of the events leading up to Laura's death are heavy. I want to talk to you about Laura's passing in the avalanche, if that's okay with you. She passed away a little over a year ago on January 11th of 2020. And I read the accident report that you wrote, and it sounds like it was just heartbreaking. Can you tell us a little about what happened? We we were skiing in in Banff National Park. We were we were backcountry skiing, and um, we were out skiing with a friend of ours who who's a guide. We we were out on a, a higher avalanche risk day for sure, um, but it wasn't. So we but we so we went to terrain that um, you know we thought was going to be more manageable. It was a new area to us, like we wanted to go check out a new area because it's that's part of the the pleasure of these activities is going to new zones for sure. And, you know, we're all, we were all quite adventurous. And, um, so we, we were, we'd skied a few lines and you know, things were starting to get a little bit touchy. The winds were really picking up and it was get, starting to get really, really cold. So we, we decided to call it, uh, but the skiing had been phenomenal. Like we were skiing like really, really great, like boot deep to knee deep powder, just like a bit of a dream day. So we get up to the top of this ridge and, um, We'd skied the 
there's a series of sort of gullies coming off this ridge. And we'd skied the gully just to the left of it right before. And, uh, you know, it skied fine. We'd had a great run. Went back up to the top and we were skiing this final run out. And when you're skiing these things, you sort of identify um, potential hazards and places to wait to regroup in case anything goes wrong. And um, one, sort of the, one of the ethics with backcountry skiing is, you know, first tracks, right? Like giving somebody first tracks is kind of, you get to paint your, you know, your line on the canvas. It's pretty, pretty special. So we gave Laura first, you know, first tracks down this slope and she skied, skied the line um, well, and then sort of went down to the area we'd identified as our re- regrouping spot. And then um, Kevin went to ski next and Kevin's a beautiful skier. So I moved forward to watch Kevin ski this line because I really, I wanted to watch him ski. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. And as I moved forward, the slope that I was standing on, everything cracked under at my feet and uh, ripped. And so this 80 meter, which is about 200, and, 200 to 250 foot long bowl that I was standing on, uh, collapsed at my feet. And um, about a two meter or six foot crown appeared. So that's sort of how much snow slid. And I started going down with the with the snow and I had my ski poles out and I braced myself so I, I like self-arrested on my ski poles and I start yelling avalanche as loud as I can but this run is uh, it's a you know it's 400 meters so about 1200 to 1300 foot long run of snow and you know so Kevin and Laura were were down there so they couldn't hear me yelling avalanche but Kevin said he saw Laura sort of look uh, behind her and start scurrying, which got him to look over his shoulder. And so he saw this avalanche coming down and he skied up onto um, a ridge line to his right. And so he was able to get out of that, the avalanche path. And I watched this thing slide down and pick up speed. And then there's a huge powder cloud at the end. So it, just like when a wave breaks, you know, you get like a big thing of spray. The same thing happens, can happen with an avalanche. And this all happened quite quickly, you know, like in a matter of you know, like less than a minute. And uh, I, I quickly regrouped and skied off of the avalanche path that I was on because I didn't want to trigger a secondary avalanche. So I skied over um, as far as I could and then cut in on, towards them on a different angle. And when I got there, Kevin said, I saw Laura go into the trees, just start yelling her name. I, I think we'll get to her. So I get down there. We start yelling and all of a sudden we don't hear anything. And so when you're when you're backcountry skiing, you have these avalanche beacons on you. They're just constantly sending a signal. And um, so what you do is uh, if, if you think somebody's caught in an avalanche or somebody's being buried, you can turn your avalanche beacon to, uh, to search mode. And so it starts looking for other beacons. So Kevin and I quickly go on to search mode and we start scanning this, this slope and um, the numbers on the beacon, um, as you're moving closer towards the, the avalanche victim, start reading down. And you, you're yelling them out to each other. So he's yelling. It's all in meters. So he's yelling 15, 12, 10. And then all of a sudden he gets to four meters, which is 12 to 13 feet. And that's the lowest reading we're, we're getting, which is really, really serious. So that means that Laura um, was... 12 feet, um, four meters below us in the snowpack on quite a steep slope. 
So what ended up, what, what, what we think happened is, um, Laura got pushed, um, the powder cloud actually caught her off guard and pushed her into a gully. And then the snow piled on top of her in this gully. So the second this happened, I deployed my inreach that I had again on me and, uh, you just start, you just start digging. But when you're digging, you can't just dig straight down. Um, you actually have to come at it at an angle because otherwise the snow will just keep falling on top of the hole, filling it in. So you actually have to like tunnel your way into it. And when you're, when you're backcountry skiing, you always have a, an avalanche shovel with you. And you also have a probe, which is like a long, a long stick, um, like a telescoping stick. But because of how deep she was, our your your probe isn't that long. Um, so we actually had to to clear away a bunch of snow before we could start probing to actually to get to where she was. Um, and it took us over an hour to get to her. And basically, the statistics are: uh, if somebody's buried for um, for more than fifteen minutes, their odds of survival is is almost nothing. Uh, but but strangely enough, um, from that time on the survival rate doesn't actually decrease that quickly uh, in the if, for the next hour and a half. Because w- what has happened to some people is if you um, become hypothermic, your, your blood stops circulating quite as much and it can actually preserve the person. So people have actually been brought back from, from these situations. Um, so we, it, yeah, it took us over an hour uh, to get to Laura. And when we finally got to Laura, uh, we were able to get to her face um, so her feet were above her upslope and her, her head was down and her airways weren't obstructed. So there was nothing blocking them, but there was no, we couldn't feel a pulse and she was obviously unresponsive as well. And that was, that was really traumatic. Cause I remember seeing the one, one thing I remember really clearly is her, her gloves had been ripped off and it was her, I remember seeing her, her wedding ring like right beside her face. And that was pretty pretty horrible. So um, because her body was still upslope, we had to keep digging for another hour to be able to get her out fully. And by this point, we'd, uh, we'd contacted search and rescue and they hadn't come yet. So when we were finally able to, to get Laura out of the hole, the only way we could do it was I literally would have to like drag her across my body, go up slope, drag her across my body to, to get her out of it. Uh, we performed three rounds of CPR um, on her and couldn't get a response. So we, we took all the clothes that we had and the, uh, the emergency blankets and everything and um, just tried to keep her warm and try to keep her body warm until search and rescue came. So through the, through the whole recovery, you know, Kevin was doing an amazing job at keeping me calm. And keeping me on task because I was on the the verge of losing my shit the entire time. You know, you know intuitively that you need to stay calm and you need to to get your task done. But you know, your the love of your life is dying and buried in front of you. So I was I was really really fighting hard to try to keep my shit together. So the, the, the crew come in and they they fly Laura out. And then they come back and re- retrieve Kevin and I. And as we're getting flown out under the helicopter, I just completely collapsed. I just absolutely crumpled, just started screaming and shouting. And when they when we landed on the on the road, um, I was just kicking and screaming and shouting and 
because I, I thought she was dead. Like I was convinced that she was dead based on what we'd seen and how long the accident happened. So the our local police came and picked us up and took us to this waiting area um, so that we could we could debrief a little bit about what had happened. And when we were there, we found out that um, Laura had actually been medevaced from there to to one of the hospitals in Calgary, which is it's it's a ways away. But the fact that she'd been flown out meant that um, she was still alive, or that they they had reason to believe that she might still be alive. And so. We quickly arranged a ride. Um, it's a two and a half hour drive from where we were uh, to where the hospital was. And so I arranged for some friends to come pick us up and drive us there. And uh, when we got to the hospital, they told us that um, they were able to get a faint pulse. Um, but, you know, she was still unresponsive and they didn't know what her what her actual state was. But they they had a pulse and they were they slowly warm um people up in these situations, you have to warm people up really, really gradually or else your body will go into, into full shock. And so throughout the night, uh, we were there um, not knowing what was happening. And then um, the next morning, uh, the doctors came around and said that um, they, despite the fact that there was a pulse, um, her, 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 her bowels had died, um, which means that she can't be saved. Their actual words were, it's incompatible with life. And so they were going to basically unplug the machines. And uh, she was, they were going to let her um, just sort of slowly die. And so uh, when, when I was driving from, from, um, Lake Louise, where we were to Calgary, um, I'd actually called Laura's brother, who's in who's in Vancouver, which is 600 miles away, uh, to tell him what had happened. And so he got on a flight quickly. And uh, Laura's mom, who shares Laura's adventurous spirit, she was on the on a flight to Columbia uh, during this time. And uh, so we found out the hotel that she was in. We booked her a plane ticket back uh, to Calgary, and. Uh, I, I speak Spanish, and so I was able to to call and speak to the hotel and say, um, "You need to get uh, her to to call to contact us right away," um, which never happened. So we ended up calling later, and I got them to wake her up at two o'clock in the morning, saying, "We ha- you have a plane in four hours. Um, you know, Laura's had this serious accident. We don't know what's going to happen. You need to come home now." So she got on that flight, and um, so for the the rest of the next day. Um, we all, people from, from Laura's broader community came and um, to, the, to the hospital room where Laura was. And, um, yeah, we all sat around her, like holding her hand and talking to her and just telling her how much we love her and how, how much her, uh, just, just basically what she meant to us. Um, so we, we stay with her for for the day, and you know, slowly throughout the day, her her um, you, you could see her 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 pulse was was slowly decreasing, 
And Laura's mom's flight was delayed by a few hours. Um, and Laura, they, they thought she would probably pass away around, you know, in that morning. And by five o'clock at night, her heart was still ticking, but she was slowly starting to fade away. And um, we were tracking Laura's mom's flight and we could tell that she was coming in over Calgary. And I just started yelling, um, call Becky, call Becky. Um, and so we, uh, we, we, she, she answered the phone as she was coming into land. And apparently one of the stewardesses said, you know, you can't do that. And she said, I, I damn well I am and grabbed the phone and ran into the bathroom with it. And um, I was able uh, to talk to Laura um, and just tell her how much she loved her. And literally as she hung up, uh, Laura's heart stopped beating. Just, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was it was difficult. Yeah. So yeah, so for the last year, I've sort of been dealing with you know, the, the trauma of that day, um, the grief of losing your partner. Uh, it's been, and then, you know, with, with COVID on top of it all, it's been, it's been a pretty hellish year. Um, but for whatever reason, um, and, and luckily, um, you know, one area, like Laura and I had like a lot of really, really profound experiences together in the mountains. And I've found quite a lot of know, healing by getting back out into the mountains. And not necessarily everybody will, would understand that urge to get back out there and need to get back out there. But I definitely feel like a strong connection and closeness with her when I'm out there. You know, a large part of my healing has been by getting back out and into the places. that have caused me quite a lot of trauma and and pain and grief, but they've also brought a lot of beauty and joy and uh, pleasure. Um, yeah. Uh, well, while also doing a lot of counseling. <laughs> That's good. That's healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it's not. It's not just running away to the mountains. I am also. I am also getting professional help as well, which is being. I, I, I'm a very, very big advocate for for sure. Laura lived life wildly and fully, and you took a lot of risks. Some risks come with rewards and some with consequences. I wonder how you feel about those risks you've taken. You know, it's, it's interesting when you, um, you know, about, about the risk thing, because, um, you know, the reason why my, my grief and pain has been so hard is because I love Laura so deeply. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've thought at times, um, you know, if you could go back and do it all over again with you, and I absolutely would, for sure. Um, you know, it's sort of, uh, it, it is a risk to say yes to love and to open yourself up to somebody. It That was a huge, it was a risk, you know, like you, I mean, it's all vulnerable. Um, but the reward that came from that was, was, was phenomenal. Um, it was, it, you know, we weren't together a long time. You know, we were together for five years. Um, but we crammed so much into those five years. We lived 
very, very full lives. Um, and we, we tried to stay honest to what our, our ultimate values were. And that was being curious about the world, being curious about adventure and going out and, and exploring that. And, you know, and we tried developing the skills along the way to do it. Uh, but then it was also just, you know, turning down a, a corner every now and then just to go explore like in, in a city, you know, like what's up this alley and end up and sit down at like a little restaurant and having an amazing experience there, you know, hearing a, a street musician and sitting down and listening to them play for a while. And, you know, there's just the beauty in all those moments is really, really powerful. And, and once again, like that is ultimately where I feel connected with Laura is when you have those little like awe moments, you know, and they are like spiritual religious moments Grief is hard. I mean, uh, the only way I knew how to describe it, experiencing it very young, is it came in waves. Like, it comes and goes. One minute you're angry, one minute you're sad, one minute you're fine. And then it just comes out of nowhere. Like, I don't know if, if you still experience And it doesn't go away after a year. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it does. It does come in waves. And I think, once again, that that just sort of accepting that and that you can't really control it has helped quite a lot with it and just accepting that some days are, are just hard and some days you're just drained and it's okay. Um, on those days, that's, that's just where you are in on that day at that time. And you just, you sort of adjust what you do. Like not, as I say, like not every day out is, is an epic day. Sometimes it's, uh, I, I've become a really big fan of walking. I go for a lot of walks. Uh, whether it's going for walks with skis on my feet or just going for a, a walk, I find it really meditative. And, you know, once again, for somebody who sort of spent their life running around the mountains, um, like slowing down has really helped me a lot this year, for sure. Um, and once again, also, you know, as much as possible this year, um, surround myself with, with really good people um, and having their, their love and support has been, I, I wouldn't have gone through without them. No. And like, and like, I literally wouldn't have gone through without them because I remember, uh, a week after, um, the avalanche walking by, uh, the local river here and it's, it, it's the middle of winter. So it's frozen and looking down at it and thinking how much easier it'd be to just jump and to not, to not deal with any of this. Um, and the only reason I didn't, uh, was because of, I thought about what it would cause to the people around me. And also when I thought that Laura would be pretty pissed if I did that, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it's true. I mean, it's, you know, it was, it was largely for other people that I, uh, that I chose to, to go on and um, which is, which is a crazy thought for me because, you know, I've never, like, I've, I've always really enjoyed life, you know, like I, I, I love living um, and that, that's why I enjoy doing all these things because I feel so much life when I'm doing them and seeing the world and meeting interesting people. Like there's just so much life in that. Um, but I, I also understand how, if I didn't have the support network that I did, um, how that it was, it was a viable choice for me to do that. And it wasn't an unreasonable one at the time. It was like a very legitimate, strong urge. Um, so I have a lot of empathy for people who don't have, who don't, who feel like they don't have that same level of support pulling them back, uh, for making those choices. I know Laura wasn't a big fan of social media, but you're sharing about her on Instagram and I'm so happy because it seems like she was a total badass. Well, actually more than being a badass, she, she was actually, she was a healer, you know, like she, she's the type of person that people would go to for advice. She was a doctor. She's a healer. 
And, and so, yeah, she'd be, she would be so embarrassed with some of the stuff I've shared on social media about her. But one of the reasons I chose to do it, one, you know, to help, to help me heal, to keep her, her memory alive, it, it's helped me quite a lot. But I thought that it could continue to help other people heal. So yeah, she's a mega badass and like that's really, really inspiring. Um, and, and I think it can get people to sort of examine their life the way that she lived hers. It was like a life of like passion and curiosity and adventure. Like she really, really, those were her driving forces more than anything else. And I, and I think that we should all strive to live like that with also with a lot of like compassion and empathy. Um, I think that curiosity drives compassion and empathy and, and I think she did as well. And I think by sharing her stories, it keeps that spirit alive. Um, so in, in a way, it keeps her alive as well. What would Laura be proud of you for right now? Uh, I think I think Laura would be proud of me for continuing to try to live um, and to try to to follow my passions and to keep trying to follow my heart. Um, you know, she she really, really tried to pay close attention to what her her core needs were. And, and that's something I've been trying to do over the last years, really listening to my needs and speaking to them. And, and one thing that um, I've never been very good at um, being a type A person is saying no to situations and opportunities or just saying no to people in general. And there's this sort of weird notion that saying no to something is kind of quitting. And ultimately, that's you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not capable of saying no to certain situations. And it... it in a weird way, by saying yes to everything, you actually limit yourself to real opportunity. So learning to say no to certain things to enable you to say yes to other opportunities and to say yes to yourself is probably one of the more important lessons I learned from her. Even though Laura's life ended in a horrific accident in the mountains, I think it's really moving that Adam has been so open in sharing about her and also that he's found so much healing in the outdoors. When he's out there, he's keeping her memory and his connection with her alive. The amount of healing Adam has done in the past year is incredible. And I think his journey with grief has a lot to teach anyone who might be dealing with their own loss. While grieving does involve a lot of reflection and sadness, there's some room for joy as well. this thing called the wild round but it sounds like oh, it's a little awkward to ask you these no, questions no, that's fine. let's go for it are let's you down it. okay yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like this it. fun so, part so actually this is that's an interesting sort of segue about fun and laughing um is i remember the first time laughing after laura died and you have this like dissonance i mean like am i is it okay to be happy is it okay to laugh is it okay to to feel joy and ultimately i was like yeah and it's, and it's what laura would have wanted as well it is okay. And like, in fact, that's what you should be searching, like that you should be seeking those moments. You need it. And I know when my dad died and like people handle grief in funny ways in um, our Western culture and they would say weird stuff or like funny stuff or awkward stuff. And I'm like, okay, he just died. Like, you don't have to be like, did you get that? Like, Oh yeah. All the time. You know, and, and people would be afraid of telling you about the good things that were happening in their life. It was like, yes. no, I need this. Like, tell me. But, you know, and I'm, and I'm really sorry that you, that you went through that. To me, the, the irony with all of this is, like, death is the one constant in life. Like, it is the, the only thing that we're all it's guaranteed to happen to all of us. Like, it's the, the one constant. We don't talk about it. We don't deal with it well. We, we hide away from it. 
And uh, ultimately, it's part of like the full life experience to to deal with death. It is. So you actually, in, in, a, in a much broader sense, have a, a much bigger worldview because you've dealt with the ultimate human constant. Well, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So the fun questions are, one, what's your puppy's name? Pete. P-E-A-T, like Pete Moss. Have you perfected the handstand yet? Uh, no, not quite. I'm getting better, getting better. But, uh, I, so I broke, when I broke my back, um, the thoracic spine, it still isn't super strong. So that was one of the reasons for wanting to try to do the handstand was to try to strengthen that part of my back. So getting there, not quite there yet though. Well, I'm proud of you for trying. So you have a garden. What is your favorite plant in your garden right now? Well, I mean, (laughs) Uh, well, the garden uh, this time of year in Canada is under about three feet of snow. So, uh, Oh, that's right. You're in snow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I am looking at a sunflower that's in my window uh, that I actually need to go water. So thank you for the reminder. <laughs> What's the snack that you love having in your pack while you're out backcountry skiing and cross-country skiing? So, uh, so it, I love cheese. Uh, I love having little bits of cheese with me. Cheese and dark chocolate. Perfect. I really like candy ginger as well. Candy ginger. That's pretty good for your stomach too. Yeah. For like ultra races, I take a lot of candy ginger to help settle my stomach. Well, that's a good tip. Um, favorite meal to come home to? Oh, pizza. Yeah, I, lo- I, lo- I love pizza and a beer. Like that's my like favorite thing. If you weren't living in a mountain town in Canada, where would you live? Um, if I weren't living in, actually, I would love to live up in the Yukon, but I also love the desert. I love like Santa Fe. I'm also, I really like Bend, uh, really neat places. If I could live in, in Southern Spain, but like, sorry, closer to the Pyrenees, actually, um, that would be pretty cool as well. I love that part of the world. What mountain are you most excited to ski next? Uh, mountain, uh, I don't know. They're all pretty cool. Um, I'd love to go up Mount Robson. It's one of the the highest mountains in the Canadian Rockies. It's a really, really beautiful mm-hmm. mountain. I'd love to go up Robson. So Laura's dad was a climber. And we, uh, Laura and I had a list of the routes that he climbed and we were trying to repeat them. And he never actually made it up Mount Robson, but it was on his list of, of climbs. So I think it'd be pretty cool to, to get up Mount Robson. Adam keeps finding what he needs in nature. Though there's been hardship and heartbreak in the mountains, he finds community and connection out there. The great outdoors can provide so much more than exhilaration and adventures. It can also give us the space we need to heal and to find our own inner peace. Thank you so much to Adam for coming on the show and sharing your and Laura's story with such honesty and vulnerability. I wished I could have given you just a big hug so many times during our conversation. You can follow along on Adam's journey and see some beautiful pictures of Laura on his Instagram. He's at Adamo1979. That's A-D-A-M-O-1979. Or check out his website, alpinebureau.com. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted and created by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby and our presenting sponsors, Ford. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.